Hello, Dr. Jessica Vitak. Welcome to the SpartyCast podcast show thing <laughs> that we have here. Oh, happy and excited to be here. Go green. <laughs> nice, nice. Yes, Jessica and I have known each other um, since... You shortly had uh, shortly after you'd left uh, MSU with your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I finished in 2012. 2012. Okay, yeah, and that was that was uh, right when I arrived. So we barely overlapped. Um, and so you're at the University of Maryland. Yeah, I've been there and, since 2012. Yeah, in the department of help me not mess up the name it's com it's the college of information studies college of we information call, studies yep we just called the i school the i school nice um and is there a department within the i school or no no we have avoided departmentalizing uh thus far we've grown a tremendous amount we launched our undergraduate program in 2016 and just found out earlier this year we are the second largest major on campus now behind computer science so we have launched two new majors so we have information science social data science which is in collaboration with the college of behavioral and social sciences and info design which is kind of like hci for undergrad and then we have three masters and a phd program but we're all just one college. Wow, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah that, so so the you mentioned this the second largest major after computer science that would be the information science major. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And in fact, over the last yeah six seven years, we have you know gotten a lot of students who I think either realized, hey, I don't really like the upper levels of calculus, which we don't require, or I'm also interested in the people, but not just the technology itself. I'm interested in that relationship. And I think that's where we fill a nice gap because we like to talk about iSchools being at the intersection of people, technology, and information. Interesting. Um, I'm taking notes here a little bit for, for the blurb, um, but also like, yeah, this is super interesting. Um, so. The, uh, as you might know, um, Department of Media and Information is now at MSU is now part of the iSchool Consortium, though yes. we we are departmentalized. Yeah. Oh, were you like part of that process or were you watching it? I was not part of that process, but at some point around the time I started my job, I discovered that the program because that was the program I did my PhD and I didn't do my PhD in communication. I did it in at that time, telecommunication information studies and media. Tism. It was, it was never, yeah, tism. <laughs> it was never broadcast or made a big deal of that. We were part of the iSchools. And then I don't even know what I was looking at. Cause I had never heard of iSchools before beginning my job search. And then I think it was like, I was like, Oh, uh dissertation awards and things like that and i was like oh my gosh michigan state is listed here for my department so technically i was in an high school even though i always felt my of myself as a communication phd yeah yeah um that's interesting the the history of high schools is is also a bit circuitous right like it started out and, and you probably know far better than i do um in in library sciences um, That's where it, a lot of them come from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so but, University of Maryland, uh, we started off as a um, library science program. We were maybe the only one in the state of Maryland. So if you were 
going to be a librarian in the state, you were likely to come through a program, but that was, I think, in the 60s. And then uh, we transitioned to an iSchool right around 2000. Uh, some other iSchools emerge on their own, but most are coming from libraries. Some are coming as like an offshoot of a computing and engineering or computing and information technology. So that's you know, the iSchools themselves, there's over a hundred of them, but they're super diverse. And, you know, there isn't this kind of standardization across iSchools in terms of if I went to uh, Michigan or Maryland or UW, like the iSchools themselves are going to look different. The kind of composition of the faculty is probably going to look different. There's tons of sub-disciplines within iSchools and different colleges are going to have you know, real big strengths in some of them or no presence in some of these areas just because there, there are a lot of them. But, you know, they, they all pride themselves, I think, on interdisciplinarity. I think the origin will shape that, what that interdisciplinarity looks like to some degree. But uh, I know that we at Maryland have evolved a lot in the last 20 years. And obviously coming from a library science program, that was a big component of what we were initially. And it, it's still an important piece, but not nearly as uh, large of a contribution compared to all the other work that's being done at, at our school. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I, I wonder how the, the STS undergrad in me is fascinated by this uh, kind of evolution of, of fields and the the inform and and information science being right behind computer science is perhaps very telling of where we're going as an economy and um as a kind of set of academic institutions uh kind of merging together and trying to define what it is we want people to do in the future yeah and i think part of that is driven because now that the program at maryland has been around for seven years so we do have some graduation data and we're learning that the InfoSci grads are basically getting very similar jobs post-graduation to computer science. It's seen as um, kind of more accessible to folks who aren't hardcore in, in math and programming to still be being able to do these kind of higher income and, and STEM-like careers. I'm very excited for social data science. You know, the social scientist in me is really excited about this kind of, you know, blending and hopefully hoping that we can do a really strong blend between more technical stuff while, while encouraging the people in uh, behavioral and social sciences, the political scientists, the sociologists who want to have that that mix. And so I'm excited to see where that goes. We're, you know, we're at nearing the end of the first year of that program. So it's obviously still super young. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, so tell us about it. What is your uh, social science, that intersection? Uh, what were the, those three um, pieces? It was information technology and people? People. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So what are, what uh, are the technologies, uh, people and information <laughs> uh, focus for you? For me, I am very much interested in how people make decisions about whether to use new technologies and mainly how they weigh the privacy risks uh, associated with these new technologies. So I'm, I'm very much interested in both identifying people's understanding of how technology works and what it means to share data, as well as designing 
resources, tools, interventions to both help people make better sense and make more informed decisions about using technologies. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if you want to make turn your house into a smart home, but I do want you to understand that what what goes along with that is tremendous amounts of data that is constantly being collected in the background and that are being shared not just with the uh, companies that design that technology, but potentially with all kinds of third parties and 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 beyond. Yeah, yeah. Um, with or without your consent, right? There, there could also yeah. be ne nefarious actors who even the companies don't know about are accessing. Yeah. Your data. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, there's, there's ethical implications of this. There's security implications of this. I feel like every month or two, we see a story about some kind of smart device that uh, has weak security protocols and has been hacked. This was, a, there were a number of stories several years ago about baby monitors and how creepy is it that, you know, smart smart technology has done wonders for being able to track your baby, check check on them, you know, through kind of smartphone, baby monitors and all of that. And, you know, then suddenly that is compromised and somebody who just thinks they're having fun uh, hacks into it and starts like cursing at the child or saying horrible things and how vulnerable that makes you feel as a parent, I mean, it's just such a horrible thing, but so many of these devices have really, really bad security. And a lot of them have default passwords that users don't even know how to change or that they should change them, that you can just look them up online. Um, so, so it, it, and the problem with smart home technology is if one device is vulnerable, that often makes the whole system vulnerable because you're the whole benefit of them is you're interconnecting them and so it's just it's just like opening the window you know you, your your front and back door can be locked but if the window is open then that still gives somebody a way in and it's very much the same when we think about uh, uh security vulnerabilities with smart homes hmm. um so before we go too far down the um the specific research topics rabbit hole, which I do want to get into like latest findings from your work. Um, I want to ask you, are you familiar with communication privacy management theory? I am Sandra Petronio. Love, love her work. Yeah, I'm sure you, I was expecting you to be familiar with it. Well, I wasn't familiar with it, um, but it was amongst the options of theories that I could be teaching. I was I was filling in for someone teaching a class on sabbatical uh, recently. And so I inherited this class. I'm figuring out what theories and I I'm interested in the idea of uh, VR privacy. You know, all these trackers, mm -hmm. you're wearing them on your face. They're tracking your eyes. Right. Just like you said, there's there's swaths of data that you're you're giving to the company in order for the technology to work. Like you have to be tracked in order to use this tech. It has to know where your head movements are. So okay, so like that gives you the premise of my interest. And I saw this. I saw the words privacy and communication. I thought, oh, this is going to be relevant. Uh, but then, then we read it and no, it's about like interpersonal how do i let you into my circle of you know people who i trust with this information how do we negotiate that shared communication boundary mm -hmm. but i want to ask you um has there been work theoretically or or empirically that takes that uh, communication privacy management approach uh, and applies it in this context of technological devices or companies or hackable kind of experiences um, that you've seen 
Yeah, so we actually have a paper coming out in human machine communication where we apply CPM, communication privacy management theory, to smart speakers. And we know of at least two other studies that have done this. The two prior studies, which have come out in the last couple of years, were doing uh, quantitative research. We were doing focus groups. And so the idea here is how, to what extent can you extend CPM, which like you said, is an interpersonal theory. It's about how we negotiate boundaries of private information and how we think about things like ownership. So if I tell you a secret, Robbie, you and I become co-owners of that information. And so CPM talks about what rules we set up to manage that information. And then if you go and you tell another friend that secret, well, you have violated one of our rules because we said this is a secret between us. And so that creates turbulence. And then the theory also talks about how you and I would then renegotiate rules or how we would respond to turbulence. And so when you're thinking about human machine communication versus human human communication, and especially when you're thinking about whether it is Oculus, and so technically the relationship is you and Meta, or uh, smart speakers where the relationship is you and Amazon or Google, you know that negotiation is 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 much more limited. I could have lots of things I want that they're not going to let me do. So it's very much on me to understand what the rules are, but I can't negotiate the rules. And then when turbulence happens. Sure, I can still respond. I can say, oh, well, uh, I was under the impression that all of my commands to my smart speaker were being stored locally. And now I'm finding out, and this happened, where they found out that Amazon was sending audio clips to third parties for translation, you know, on saying that this was about improving the service. But that was that was that was very surprising to some people. So, but how can I react? I can't say, like, hey. And going forward, you just like turn that off for me. Like, you know, it doesn't work like that. And so <laughs> you're 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 much more you're much more limited. And so then it's kind of like the impetus then falls on the companies of like if the companies want to um, respect our privacy, then there needs to be they need to open up that communication more. And what does that look like? The easiest thing is just more transparency about what they do. The next step would be more user controls uh, or switching things from like things that maybe are an opt out to an opt in. So like if I I would have to purposefully opt in to let uh, Amazon share my my stuff. Now, is that going to come anytime soon? Not without probably government intervention. And so, you know, we talk about uh, in some of our research, we talk about, okay, companies can be more transparent, they can increase the visibility of this information uh, and make it more accessible to users. So it's not just, you know, buried in the terms of use, where which we know from many, many studies, nobody reads, and that they provide users with more options to maintain control over their data, preferably without reducing the usability of the device. Because if I want to use, you know, a headset but I don't want to share all of this potentially sensitive data about a private space and all of that with Meta. If that's going to mean I can't use the device, then what? You know, what's the point? We can't have these all-or-nothing takes that we often see in the terms of use, where it's like you have to agree to X, Y, and Z, or 
that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's the thing, right? Like, like I uh, was thinking about with VR, if you're not willing to share any data, then you can't use the product. Um, and but you raise an interesting point here, which is that like maybe there's a solution in the design from from a design perspective, right? Like you lose certain functionality if you turn certain things off, but it's not mm. an all. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I've never done research on this, but you could imagine that they could even build it into the technology where maybe if I'm using uh, VR in my bedroom and the technology is able to detect like when I turn my head and then like I'm focusing on something sensitive, a bathroom, it detects a toilet that then it immediately like pauses what I'm doing and, you know, says like, do you want to continue or do you want to? turn off some functionality or something, something like that. So, I mean, I think there are creative ways that they could do that, but I think kind of the biggest problem is putting all of the effort to understand and manage this on the end user and not on the company themselves. It's the easy way out for them, but we, we can't make assumptions about an informed user base with any of these technologies, regardless of how high end and how, you know, how much they're used by just tech savvy people. We we can't make those assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you done any research or seen any research on how people kind of read and perceive those terms of service or privacy policies and um, how the, like that those readings then influence their uses or like my assumption is most people don't read them and are blissfully ignorant. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely true. Very much of uh, information overload situation. And unfortunately, what we've seen is, you know, one of the outcomes of GDPR, so the general data protection regulation that went into effect in the EU in 2018, the, the kind of most influential comprehensive privacy regulations globally. One of the outcomes of that was what something we're all familiar with, and that's these pop-ups we see when we go to websites about cookies. But I think what the takeaway has been from that is that it's well-intended. It's trying to give you, the end user, more control over what data you share with websites and, and with third parties, but you're seeing them every website you go to you're seeing them constantly. accept all, accept all, accept all, accept all. <laughs> and yeah, you know, we, we they talk about people talk about dark patterns where a very simple dark pattern is literally just to make the button bigger and brighter for what you want people to do. And, you know, diminish things like, OK, some some websites actually have a reject all button. Others, you have to click into another page to like look at all the things and change the settings and update. But it's it's yes, people don't want to engage with that. It is cognitively taxing. It's preventing them from getting to whatever they are trying to do. And so probably the the best step forward so far, although still with flaws, is the uh privacy nutrition labels. So Apple released the this December of 2020, I believe, but it's actually built on research that was done at Carnegie Mellon a decade earlier about how do we standardize information about data collection practices? Well, we can use a nutrition label as kind of this template. We all know what nutrition labels, they provide us this very basic information about the food we eat and the most important pieces. And so what would that look like in terms of an app? And so Apple released this 
but the problem is, is that while it's, again, well-intentioned, what we very quickly learned is that Apple doesn't have the resources to be vetting this information. And so journalists, and I believe folks at CMU were going in and they were saying, like they were actually doing the comparison. They're like a significant portion of these nutrition labels are not accurate. They're not matching onto what the data practices actually are. And so while this kind of standardization process, it's simplifying what is often written, written for lawyers into very straightforward terms is a good idea, but it needs, it needs more work. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I've often wondered, right. Uh, like with the nutrition labels, the literal nutrition labels, how, what the processes are and where the money comes from. Uh, to maintain adherence and, and oversight. Um, and so, yeah, in the information world, like we're, we're kind of cursed with a product that people don't put the same kind of value in as food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they pay with their with their attention span through advertising dollars. They don't actually pay with their regular dollars. They underestimate how, how influenced they are by media. Um, so it might be an uphill battle to to get legislation or organizational kind of uh, convergence toward that type of initiative. But it makes so much sense. Privacy, nutrition labels. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the other big challenge is that in the U.S., the main regulatory body is the FTC, uh, Federal Trade Commission. And they are very significantly under-resourced, especially when, you know, they're meant to regulate these multi-billion dollar corporations, the, the Facebooks and Googles out of there, and they just don't have enough money or staff to, to effectively do that. And so they already have a very uphill battle, but whether we need to just, you know, infuse tons of money and resources into the FTC or create another governing body, there is a real clear need for that. And some of the privacy regulations that we've seen proposed in recent years do try to address that because, yeah, as long as these tech companies are in such positions of power and have so much money behind them, then, you know, the ball is really in their court and we need to take it away. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so I, I kind of steered us in this direction of this topic, but um, but without any sort of uh, preconceived notions of interest, topical interest. What are you most excited about in your research, Jess? So what am I most excited about? I've been doing some research lately uh, into workplace surveillance. That's super fascinating to me, and especially workplace surveillance in a post-COVID world, because probably folks like yourself who were just trying to, you know, get your kids dressed every day uh, and get food in their mouths in the early months of the pandemic, you probably weren't paying much attention to anything else. But what we saw, and especially for workers who shifted to remote, but also workers who had to keep going, like warehouse workers and things like that, is a tremendous uptick in workplace monitoring technologies, huge demand and a huge supply of, of new technologies. And we saw this in terms of things like at Amazon, outfitting workers with all kinds of sensors, which they had been doing pre-pandemic. There's a big to-do about all of the ways in which delivery drivers for Amazon are monitored and uh, the warehouse workers the same, but 
that we see it's all just increased so much. But what was really fascinating to me is for people who shifted to remote work, this caused a tremendous blurring of home and work boundaries. And now before the pandemic, we talked about this already in terms of like, you know, we got, we're getting work email on our phone or whatever, but this is literally bringing your boss into your home. You know, we didn't have a choice. We were having Zoom calls all day in our homes with, you know, kids doing remote learning in the background, you know, partners who are also trying to work and do all of this stuff. And so a company with that technology that, for example, is uh, taking pictures every minute of your screen and that can capture all of that, that is monitoring all the websites that you are, are going to, all in the name of maintaining productivity, ensuring compliance with various workplace rules and things like that. But it's super invasive. And in the first months of the pandemic, maybe that's okay, because you know everything is chaotic there and we're just trying to get by. At this point, we're three years post. And what we're finding is that, you know, one, more people are working remotely now and probably will stay remote or hybrid. But also, even as people are going back to the office, what we're finding is companies and employers have recognized there are benefits to collecting all of this data about their workers. And from a privacy perspective, this is this is not good for many reasons. From the most obvious one being it doesn't adhere to the principle of data minimization, which is something that GDPR covers, but just in general is good. Don't collect more data than what you need. You know, apps are so bad about this. The apps that ask for your contacts, that ask for your location data, but that that is not needed to make the app run. And it's because of this belief that more data is better. And what we don't want is a situation where this data is collected over time and then potentially fed into some kind of predictive model to determine things like who should get a promotion or who should have their healthcare costs increased. And all of these things, I think maybe some people think they're ridiculous, but they're really not. And we're much closer to a world in which algorithms are making these kinds of important decisions based on biased or limited or just outright inaccurate data. And so that's that's kind of what I'm I'm really interested in right now. I have some projects uh, looking at surveillance at, at home, at school, and at work. And I think kind of all of them together create a, a I mean, disturbing, but also fascinating space for me to be doing research. A little scary, a little terrifying, especially in this age of, uh, of so much AI. Um, though I will, I will pose a a probably um, terrible question. Um, is the principle of data minimalization really the solution to um, algorithmic bias? Or would data maximization, not that I'm advocating for this, but just a theoretical question, like if, if bad data leads to bad decisions, then the more data you have, the better mm. those models. It does, mm. you know, relinquish power of choice and agency from from us which certainly makes us uncomfortable but uh but is that besides it being kind of like you know intentionally provocative um is that a good idea 
It is very provocative. Uh, it is probably the plot of more than one sci-fi movie yeah. <laughs> at some level or another. So yeah, I, I definitely don't think, I think data uh, data minimization is a distinct from when, we, when we're talking about the problems of algorithms. And, you know, I think there are multiple. One is the the very common saying of garbage in, garbage out. So when you're building an algorithm on trash data, well, sure, it's going to be a trash algorithm. And I think ChatGPT is highlighting this because ChatGPT is trained on all kinds of text from the internet as if the internet is somehow as a whole fact-checked and verified. Like there's plenty of really good information online, but there's also tons of trash. And I actually had this amazing experience yesterday where I had a, a, a woman who is, says she's planning to go back to grad school. She really wants to learn more about chatbots, like that's what she wants. So she was interacting with ChatGPT about it. And ChatGPT recommended an article by me, but she couldn't find it. And so she wanted to know if I could share it. And, and it didn't exist. My, I mean, like my eyes got as round as teacups because I was just like, oh my God, she's literally asking me for a made up article that Chad GPT recommended to her. And I, <laughs> I, I had to it. tell her. That is so funny. <laughs> I was like, listen, this is how these systems work. You really should not rely on them for, and for you should at least like go double check after you think a thing exists, whether it really exists. <laughs> Well, she did. And she just thought that she couldn't find it, that it was, oh. you know, it was just like something that hadn't been posted online. Maybe it was something that just came out or something, something like that. But I'm like, all, all, what ChatGPT is really good at is figuring out the mathematical equations to maximize what word association, what two two words, phrases, sentences should go together. So it was something about like family dynamics through using chat. I mean, it was something that was plausible. For Sounds like something you probably, some something you maybe should do. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to rely on ChatGPT to determine my my future <laughs> research papers, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I have completely now like gone off on my tangent and don't don't remember where I was to get back to it. Oh no, um, that's that's such a great anecdote. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the question is like. So garbage in, garbage out. So if we okay. put, yeah, yeah. if we put a lot oh, of, uh, you know, it's more data better. In. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, part, part of the problem is literally in the way systems are built. And so PredPol is a predictive policing algorithm that uses a large amount of data to predict, you know, what parts of a city or, or should law enforcement be deploying units to. It has a lot of data about people, but it's really biased data. It might be accurate data in that it's saying like, these are the people who were brought in uh, for questioning, who were arrested, whatever. But we know that in cities in the US, just because you are black increases the likelihood that you're going to have a police uh, interaction. And that doesn't mean you committed a crime, but the data is telling a version of the truth, but the algorithm can't account for all of the nuances within that truth. So, you know, simply quantifying all of these metrics about ourselves is likely still going to give us an incomplete 
version of reality. And that's where I get concerned is that we, and I think the other problem is, is that we often use proxies when we're building these models and proxies by their nature are not the actual data. There's something that is similar. Um, and so that can be problematic for various reasons. You know, Amazon got a lot of attention for when people called out their, they use an algorithm to determine where they offer um, like prime next day shipping and things like that. And they look, mapped out a bunch of cities and what they found is like most of the city was, it was available for it, but not certain neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods just happened to be high minority neighborhoods. And, and Amazon's like, but we didn't include race in the algorithm. And it's like, okay, but you included other data uh, that serves as a proxy for race. And guess what? Those types of things are also going to be it. So then do you have to exclude that too? Uh, you know, it's, it's this balancing of how do we build an accurate model but then how do we make sure that we're not including problematic variables? And I think this 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 manifests in all kinds of ways when you're thinking about, about data science and how do you account for that bias? Uh, and so I don't know that just collecting more data about everybody is going to make things better. In some ways that might just reinforce some of the issues that we already have. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're right. Um especially in the year 2023 um you know in in one in some of those sci-fi novels that you refer to <laughs> i think maybe there's a there's a potential for optimism uh once we have supercomputers in everyone's pockets um and <laughs> but until then okay so i i think you're you're doing really interesting work uh perceptions of privacy and data uh, management um workplace surveillance uh, is there one last one you want to uh, tell the sparty cast listeners about one i haven't talked about too much directly but we've been talking about it indirectly is i'm on a large nsf grant around uh, data ethics and so we've been working together seven of us for the last six years on a project called pervade for pervasive data ethics for computational research in which we're trying to study key stakeholders and that's the researchers like data scientists and others who are doing this research the uh, governance bodies like IRBs as well as the end users and we just published in big data and society a paper in which we were looking at people who are using Instagram Reddit and dating apps so three distinct data collections to get at different types of data sharing. So Instagram obviously being image-based social media, Reddit being this kind of pseudonymous, sometimes sensitive, but you know, the whole idea is you're not real, your real identity. And then dating websites where it is your real identity and you often want to disclose a lot because you're trying to meet a partner. And we did use the method called uh, factorial vignettes to assess kind of the pain points where people saw inappropriate or appropriate uses of their data. So it starts from the premise that, you know, not just the companies, researchers are collecting data from these platforms and using it for all kinds of things. And so what are people okay with or, or not okay with 
And the biggest takeaway in that paper is that while there are variations across the platforms, most consistent is around user awareness. Users really don't like when this thing happens and they only find out when you know some news organization breaks the story of how it's problematic. They rec- I think they recognize that they all they can't have complete control over their data, but they do want to be made aware and ideally have some agency, whether that is saying be having final reports shared with them, whether that is actually being able to opt out or have their data deleted, those types of things, or just be told this is being done. Um, and it's really that, you know, when, we, when we're in the dark and we don't know, how can we possibly trust these systems? And so it's really to the benefit of the researchers and the companies themselves to be more transparent about this because we want to have that trust between users and researchers, users and companies. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely challenging. Um, but I, I think there are ways forward from a research perspective in terms of if you're doing research where you're going on to Reddit and scraping lots of posts, there are things you can do as a researcher. I think people either don't haven't been trained to think through these questions or they're just worried about it, cre- it makes taking longer, creating new barriers, these types of things. But it's the right thing to do is to go through these processes, to ask yourself questions about what potential harms could emerge from data collection, these types of thought exercises. Because a lot of this times, this type of research is not is does not fall under the scope of IRBs. And something that is, is uh, exempt from IRB does not mean it's ethical. People conflate those two things, but what really should be happening for researchers who are collecting data from these platforms is that they should be going through at minimum reflecting on a series of questions about the data they're collecting, what data they need, what, how they can kind of empower the people behind that data, because it is people, even though again, IRBs aren't defining it as human subjects research, uh, you know, how they can be more open about what they're doing with them because they're not going to get consent. So, yeah, interesting that that brings us full circle um, back to the the CPM idea, turbulence with companies and how to manage uh, user understandings and expectations, uh, user awareness. um, And I guess so the principle of minimization, right? Like, what are you collecting? Mm -hmm. Do you really need it? Um, Even if it's not human subjects research and um, even if it's exempt from IRB, yeah, you're still responsible. I mean, that, that's kind of like you you can still you still have to submit an IRB even if it's not human subjects. Well, I don't know. Maybe you don't even no. have to if it's just data. No, scraping. you don't. Oh, a lot of times, a lot of times, researchers might reach out to the IRB and say, "Do I need to?" And then the IRB will say no. But again, that's not a rubber stamp that then there's no prop potential issues with this. You yeah. as the researcher still have work to do to make sure there aren't any harms introduced by your work. Wow. Well, that's really important work that you're doing. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Jessica, so much for sharing it. Uh, all of all of your work and your responses to some of these prompts, these, uh, <laughs> you know, go with the flow kind of prompts uh, from me. I look forward to seeing you in Toronto at the International Communication Association Conference. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll catch you on another SpartyCast someday. Oh, sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, much appreciated to the listeners who stuck with us and thanks, Jess. Thanks, Robbie.